us. Amen. And we're not saying that the way we do this is right. We're not saying that it's the only way. We're just saying it's the only way the Lord has shown us thus far. That's what we're saying. And we're willing to stretch, move, bend, as long as it's according to the Word. And uh, I ask you not to be offended with us, especially not if the Lord's presence is here. Instead, let's just search the Word together and let's make it a journey. Amen? Amen. Anybody know something this year you didn't know five years ago? Well, that's how the kingdom works. That's how it works. I refuse to take somebody's 200-year-old revelation and claim that's all there is or ever can be and uh, live by it like a new form of the Mosaic Law. I just won't do it. My relationship with the Lord is living, breathing, active. Uh, there are certainly indisputable matters that nobody can contest. Jesus is Lord, right? That He's coming back. That there's a literal heaven, literal hell, those things. But, you know... Whether or not we like to bounce up and down, clap and spin, or kneel on our knees might be a disputable matter. It might be a preference. Let's not let congregations get divided over stupidness. Amen? Amen. That's a highly technical word, stupidness. <laughs> but Proverbs 12.1 teaches, in the NIV anyway, if you hate correction, you are stupid. So that's the only reason we use that word in church. I'm sorry for <laughs> you parents that don't use it. In my house, we used it frequently. <laughs> Come on, y'all love Jesus? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to get get going this morning. It is October 7th. It is 2012. And our message today is called The Anointing. Uh, I don't do series. I don't know how to do series. I always thought that they were the tool of a lazy pastor who really just didn't want to study again. So he preached leftovers. And uh, that may not be true if you have a pastor that preaches anointed series. Praise God. Lend me one occasionally. I'd be happy to listen and listen to it with you. In my life, it hasn't worked that way. Having said that, uh, the last few weeks feel very connected to me. When we talk about rain coming out of the earth and uh, something supernatural coming out of something innately earthly, and then we talked uh, about into all truth, that the Spirit leads you into all truth, and now we're talking about the anointing, I can see a red thread or a scarlet thread moving through these messages, and I just encourage you, if you haven't heard those, uh, to listen to them. It'll help you catch up. Turn to John 14. You'll be in John 14, verse 15. Joey, uh, if you can make that large enough to fill the screen as much as you can, won't do it? Okay, then y'all will have a hard time reading some of these. In John 14, uh, starting in verse 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. I've talked to you a little bit lately about different nomenclatures. The way in which different churches, different groupings of people express things differently. For instance, a charismatic person may say, Hey man, you just need the Holy Spirit. And to the Baptist fellow, like I was when I was told that, I thought, this guy's saying I'm not a Christian because every Christian has the Holy Spirit. I found out later that's not really what that charismatic guy meant. He just meant you need more. You, you need another dose. You, you need more liberation. I didn't understand that. And I also, as a young Baptist man, didn't realize uh, that this was an ongoing seeking thing. I saw it more of a, of a one-time kind of thing. We're all indwelt with the Holy Ghost. We know that. We take it for granted and move on. I would like to tell you, based on this verse, the world cannot accept him, but it neither sees him nor knows him. Uh, I would say this. 
anybody in your life that ever insinuated that you might need a new experience with the Holy Spirit, an ongoing experience with the Holy Spirit, whatever it might be, is actually giving you a glowing endorsement. They're actually telling you right up front, you're not of the world, man. You're of God. Because the world can't receive what we're telling you to receive. So let's get out of, uh, of that difference of opinion. Let's move way away from our United Pentecostal brothers that I just think are an error on this. And let's jump right out there and say, only believers get to experience what we're talking about. So we're, we're not arguing about the difference between a good believer and a bad believer, a first class believer and a second class believer. We're simply talking about the rights of all sons of God to be touched by their father. To have His Spirit move in them, dwell in them, and act in them. That is our subject this morning. The first thing that He called them was a counselor. Let's move on uh, from there, verse 17. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. My goodness. They had a relationship to the presence of the Lord. But the relationship was going to change. It was going to go from an external presence to an internal presence. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We're going to come back to each one of these statements, but let us keep reading for context. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and... Show myself to him. What an amazing thing. How many of you want to see Jesus? Come on, I want to see Jesus with all my heart. I'm fortunate enough to know a few men that have seen him in a vision, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I mean, they're staring at Jesus. So what could this promise mean? It must be that somehow or another we see Jesus by way of his spirit in each other. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, how'd you like to have that name in the first century? Said, but Lord... Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Three more verses. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. He goes on to say, He doesn't give as the world gives. I'd like to go back through a couple of these. When we say counselor, are you fond of anybody saying, <clears throat> I think he was meeting with a counselor the other day. Mm -hmm. That kind of indicates a problem, doesn't it? And dear God, if there's anything we've learned in America is we, we can't let people know we have problems. Right? So I, I, I haven't met a couple that's in the center of the church. So I, I walk up and I say, hey, man, how are you? What do you say 100% of the time? Yeah, hey, I'm doing great. Is it, is it true? It's, it's usually not true, but we have learned to project strength. I mean, you might argue that with this particular administration that's in office. But in general, as a culture, we project strength and perfection, even if it's not true. So that even when you're hurt, what is the first thing you try to do? If you fall on the ground, what's the first thing you do? You say, I'm fine. You look to see who saw you, right? Those are normal things. We grow up in that environment. Jesus did not give us a counselor because we were needy and needed to lay on a couch and talk about what happened to us when we were young. 
This word in Greek is parakletos. It's an interesting thing because it's often translated comfort or counsel. It can be translated encouragement or to exhort. But it's really a verbal adjective. And check this out. Greek writers used it of legal advisors, proxies, anybody who advocated for you. But very specifically, it refers to any kind of aid that you would receive. So let me just say this. If Curtis is trying to lift an armoire above his head, and he can't quite get it above his chest, because as muscular and, and, and masculine as he is, he just he can't do that. But Cody and I walk over, grab the two ends, and now together we get it above his head. Does, is that aid? If uh, Raquel doesn't have food for her baby, right? And we drop off some food, is that aid? If you're drowning and somebody gives you a hand, is that aid? These are all different kinds of aids, and it's all the parakletos. Now, it's been sometimes referred to as, oh, a, a teacher. And all. Well, in some cases, it can be that. But it is anything that gives you aid where you needed it and didn't have it. Now, I want you to catch what that means then. The counselor then is not somebody who says, <clears throat> don't do that again. He may say that. But that is not how you define counselor. He's not the one who simply goes and stands before the prosecuting attorney and says, this guy needs a defender. It could be that. But that's not, it's not only these legal ramifications. You need to think of the Holy Spirit as the one who divinely enables you to do something you couldn't do without him. Come on now. That, that is such a bigger category. That is so much, like we'd say in Louisiana, more better. It is so much better, guys, because this means anything God has called you to do, the Holy Spirit is the power by which you do it. How many of you know that it is wrong to sin? God, we've got to keep preaching. Only about 70% of you. How many of you want to go to the Buddhist temple in the back? <laughs> Listen, we know that it's wrong to sin, so why do we do it? Well, because sometimes we're weak. The Holy Spirit is the answer. He is who divinely enables you to overcome sin. He divinely enables you to do whatever God's called you to do. He is the counselor. Another thing that was said in verse 17, the Spirit would live in you. Guys, this is a, a fundamental change. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. The litmus test for belonging to Christ was the presence of the Holy Spirit, that divine enablement in your life. And you know what? Here he's called the Spirit of Christ as well as the Holy Spirit. In uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you can find this in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The Holy Spirit should display God's ownership in your life. What this would mean is we no longer simply say, I'm going to go and set up an electrician's business with Matthew. Why? Because we can. Now we pray and we say, Lord, what is your will? And how does he show you what his will is? Can you simply go consult the law book? And it says in the law book somewhere, in the year 2012, you will be tempted to start a business, but you shall not start that business. <laughs> you know, I know people that think their Bibles work that way. Mine doesn't. I mean, my Bible didn't tell me what to name my children. 
My Bible didn't tell me who to marry. My Bible did not tell me what city to live in. Do, do y'all have different books in your Bible than I have? How would you know any of these things then? The Holy Spirit who lives in you directs your life. He's the divine presence of God in you who is showing you which way you should go, what you should do, and most importantly, giving you the power to do it. So let me ask you, should we have a church that we call Spirit-filled? Shouldn't every church be Spirit-filled? If it's not Spirit-filled, what should we be doing? Run. Maybe we could sell encyclopedias or something, but I don't want somebody to, to give me instruction about God that is not motivated by the Spirit. Now, if what you just heard, because you have maybe a little burr under your saddle uh, towards this kind of terminology, Eric just said that spirit-filled churches are the only ones. I want you to understand. I think most of what happens in quote-unquote spirit-filled churches is garbage. I think most of what happens in all denominational churches is garbage, if I'm honest. That doesn't mean God's not working through it. I only want the authentic, genuine work of the Holy Spirit. Because what comes from man, it doesn't last. It does not last. So, I guess if you wanted to call me uh, anything, you could say I equally discriminate against everything that cannot be demonstrated as God. Is that fair? Yes. Okay, so let's move on from this. The Spirit living in you is a different relationship though. You actually in Corinthians 13, 5, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, He offers them to examine themselves. It's not on the screen. You strain, but you won't see it, Dustin. They, they, he said, examine yourself to see if the Spirit of God is in you. Unless, of course, you fail the test. In other words, we ought to be able to look at our life and not just go, well, Brandon was confirmed when he was in the seventh grade, and somebody said... Receive the Holy Spirit. Was that more like Zorro or more like Ananoke? Okay. And say, receive the Holy Spirit. There ought to be something in his life that says, you know what? Consistently, I feel the Lord urging me in new directions. Consistently, I feel his spirit bearing witness with my spirit that I'm a son of God. I consistently feel him drawing me closer to the Father. Those kind of things. This is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, so are all of the nine gifts of the Spirit, and so are miracles of any kind. These are demonstrations of the Spirit's power. Another way to say it are manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, the way in which the Spirit reveals that He's present in your life. Not only did Jesus say that the Counselor would be with us forever, the divine enablement forever, He said He would set up His residence in you. Then in verse 18, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Come on now, say, I'm not an orphan. I'm not an orphan, guys. Deuteronomy 31.8 says it this way. The Lord Himself goes before you, and He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Anybody in here experience fear? <laughs> yeah. And the Bible forbids it. So if we want to have a biblical church, what's that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it also says, be joyful on all occasions and pray continually. How are you doing with that? I don't know whether LSU won or lost, but I bet some of you prayed about it, huh? <laughs> I shouldn't bring up those subjects, huh? Preach about anything other than what actually addresses our lives, right? 
Preach, preach about somebody else's sin, but don't ever talk about mine because it's uncomfortable. Listen, if church does not address your life, if your pastor doesn't know your name, we might have a relationship that is called a pastor in a church, but doesn't fit a biblical definition. In the, in, in the first century, to follow a rabbi meant that you knew him, and he knew you, and you know what? You were expected to imitate him. The saying was, cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi. The idea being that when he stepped, you stepped. And whatever he was kicking up, it got on you. That is a little different than watching a man that might as well be reading from a teleprompter. It really is. This is not to disparage anyone. But let's just read some pastular, pastular, popular pastoral biographies. Is that fine? If we read Paul's, for instance, we would find out that he was beaten 40 minus 1 lashes many times. We'd find out he was shipwrecked a day and a night in the open sea. We would find out that his field extended even to the Corinthians. His field extended as far as Ephesus. We would see that he bore the works of an apostle in his life. Of course, if we read today a pastoral bio, what we're likely to find is this man, let's just call him, we have a Pastor Matt in here, so let's call him Pastor Matt. Pastor Matt has been preaching the gospel for 30 plus years. Pastor Matt does not like okra, and he likes sports of all kinds. There are four teams in which Pastor Matt regularly roots for. That's a real bio. I read it two days ago. A real bio of a pastor. Is that alarming? What are we looking for? I would like to tell you that you ought to see Jesus. You can't do that an hour a week. You ought to see Jesus in people's lives. He died to give us access to His Spirit. His Spirit will not just counsel you, divinely enable you. He will set up in your life forever, and you are not an orphan. Listen to how Jesus said this in John 10. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. How many evangelists will use that verse? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. How many evangelists could fill a football stadium with that? But Jesus said it. Do you want a biblical evangelism? I say that in kind of jest. I think it's funny that we talk about we're going to have a biblical this or that and we base it on a single verse. Biblical anything better be described from beginning to end. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. There ought to be something in our lives that says this is more than an ordinary man. He may be flawed, may be broken, he may be a jar of clay, but there is something in him that is indestructible life. There is something in him that, that calls out to the deep in me and says there's hope. There is something in him that makes me just want to ask him, what is the reason that you have for this kind of hope? This is a little different than learning to trap somebody in an elevator and, and read a recited uh, witness list to them. This kind of witness flows from the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is inside of us. Jesus didn't just say that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. He said that we would see Jesus. How do we see him? We see him in each other. We see him every time somebody rises to become more than dirt. They do something supernatural. Sometimes supernatural can be as simple as a joy, joyous smile. Sometimes something supernatural can be a selfless act. And you know what? Sometimes it could be prayer in languages a man never heard. 
or divine knowledge of something in the future that you didn't know about, or divine encouragement that you're being given that nobody could know you needed, or a miraculous healing. It could be so many things. You know what it's not? Ascent to a doctrinal creed. And this is what we think makes us Christians. What makes us Christians, what causes us to pass the test is when something supernatural is inside of us, friends. This is what I'm hoping you yearn for. I'm hoping that Spencer's not his head. Is there anybody out there that yearns for something supernatural? Yeah. Come on, y'all talk to me this morning. This is a big family meeting. If you don't like me, say so. It's okay, right? I, I took the hymnals out of the pews. I took the pews out of the church. I mean, there's nothing to throw at me. If you don't like me, I'll run from you. It's okay. I, I, at some point, we have to have a real conversation. Between me and you, between you and each other, and most importantly, dialogue between you and your Heavenly Father that says, I just, with all of my heart, want whatever is of you. Show me. And believe that if you seek truth, you'll find it. This is distinctly different than dividing this room of about 100 people up into four groups of 25. These 25 say... We have determined that we believe these things never happen. We will go stand in that corner with people who believe like us. The back corner will be filled with those who believe some of those happen, but not all of them. In this corner will be those who agree with neither camp because they think only one gift occurs. In this corner over here, they think it all passed away, but it did at one time exist. Do you hear how cowardice this is? I will communicate in group with only those who we have agreed never to challenge each other. I think the living faith is bold. I think it's vibrant. I think the Word of God ought to step on our toes. I think it ought to lift our spirits. I think it ought to enliven us. My hope is that we will see in each other's lives a demonstration of the Spirit's presence and power. I'd like to tell you that in verse 20, we have this. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We can argue all day long about how people define a trinity or a triunity, or some would even say a oneness. I can tell you that there is a Hebrew word called ichad that made it make perfect sense to me. Ichad is any time you have something that is plural, like this church body, acting in one accord, acting in a sense of unity. So... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is never divided in and of himself. You see, the Lord is communal. In the first chapters of the Bible, he says, let us make man in our own image. This speaks of some plural entity that only acts in a singular fashion. The actual grammar in Hebrew bears this out. Jesus is expressing this in a different way. He is saying that he is in the Father, the Father is in him, and you are also can be in them. This speaks of us being in a kind of unity of mind, a kind of completeness of spirit. When Jesus prayed, he prayed like this. This comes from John 17, 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the theirs, the apostles, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The result of being immersed into the Father, immersed into the, the Son, immersed into the Spirit, you being one with them, them being one with you. In other words, your will is not distinguishable from theirs. You're simply divinely enabled to carry it out. 
the result of that is that the world would know and believe that Jesus is of God. Why do you think we're so divided? It's the devil's plan for us to be divided. It takes a supernatural move of God to unite Christians. Every once in a while you'll see a movement, like a football coach in the 90s did promise keepers, right? And for a while everybody's, woo, woo, we were on the promise keepers bandwagon. And I loved it. Matthew and I went. We were just kids, right? And it was, it's a neat feeling to be with Christians from every denominational background, right? And we're all praising the Lord. Of course, after the meeting's over, what did we all do? We retreated to our own corners. We began to compete with each other, talk about each other, lift one man's doctrine above another. The same thing that Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for. It takes a supernatural move of God to move beyond these boundaries, beyond these divisions. I'm saying that he's big enough to do it and we ought to try. I believe that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will do this in us. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. This would mean that Jesus is in the Father, you are in Jesus, and by His Holy Spirit, Jesus is inside of you. How many of you believe Jesus is glorified? Does that fit in your theology okay? I'm here to tell you the Bible says he was physically glorified. They touched him and yet he could walk through walls. And in that physical body, he ascended to the right hand of God. So Jesus is in a physical space, in a physical place right now. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. That's a gift preachers have. So how is he in you? He's in you by way of his spirit. Unless, of course, we fail the test. In the 23rd verse, we see it said this way. If anyone loves me... He will obey my teaching. My Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. This is very important because this speaks of permanence, friends. A permanent home. In John 4, 24, we hear spoken of the Father. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and truth. He goes on to say, these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is what? Spirit. If you saw him as an old man with a white beard, that is not scriptural. It's not. He said, but John saw a guy with a white beard. Read closely. The Father has never been seen. He said, well, Moses saw the Father. No. Stephen tells us that he saw angels representing the Father in Acts 7. <clears throat> Anytime you ever thought somebody saw the Father, they saw the angel of the Lord or a representative because John declares in more than one place, God is spirit and can't be seen. In Acts 16, 7, listen to this. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. If the Father is a Spirit, if Jesus has a Spirit, and something indwells us that we call the Holy Spirit, are we beginning to understand that these are all names for the same one God? This is not a statement about oneness and triunity. What the, this is not a doctrinal argument. What I'm trying to say is if you're going to interact with the Lord, it's going to have to be by His Spirit. Have you ever wondered what it must have been like for the apostles to see Jesus ascend? Uh, it, wonderful, right? But how hard is it for you when somebody you love leaves for a weekend? How hard is it when, when uh, they move away, right? Zeke had to move away from some family. It tears your heart out, doesn't it? They're watching Jesus leave. But you know what? In under 50 days, they felt him return. He came inside them. Suddenly, his thoughts were with their thoughts, teaching them, reminding them, encouraging them, and most importantly, divinely enabling them. How are you going to interact with Jesus? You're going to have to do it by his spirit. Friends, that's not a second-class relationship. 
Let's imagine Jesus is on the planet right now. What country would he be in? Well, we're Americans, so he would, he'd be in America. Poor guy's in the Vatican, right? So what are you going to do if you're in Australia and Jesus is in America? Are you going to video conference? I mean, what is it that you're going to do? You're going to Skype with each other? See, by him going to the Father and the Father pouring out the Spirit, it gave us all a way to have access to his thoughts. All of us a way to be empowered by him, not just a local group. Tell me that's not better. Come on, that is better, friends. In Colossians 1.27, it said this way, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope that you have for glory is that by His Spirit inside of you, you would be being conformed to His likeness. You would be empowered to act like Him. The whole world would see Jesus inside of you, Nick. How cool is that? This means that somebody could go, He looks like Nick. I knew Nick before. He looked like a regular guy. But something is different. I think Jesus is being formed in there. That is kind of... Does anybody know the concept of a sleeper? Not, not a sleeper cell in terrorism. A sleeper in the automobile industry. Yes. We don't have anybody that was alive in the 60s in here. What's wrong with y'all? A sleeper is when you took like your mom's station wagon, but you dropped a Hemi in it. Yeah. Right? It's, it's when you took a, a Jeep, but you put a 350 in it. Come on, Zeke, we're about to put an engine in your car, right? Can you imagine? You pull up and it looks like an ordinary sled, right? Just a clunker, push puller drive sale. But when the light says go, you find out there was something entirely different inside, right? Now, if Fred pulls up in his Corvette Stingray, right? If he pulls up in that, that's not a surprise, right? You knew what it was when he pulled up. But when somebody blows your doors off in their mom's station wagon, that was a special kind of feeling. This is what the Lord has done, though. This is what the Lord has done. We look like any old ordinary sled. We look like common dirt, dust of the earth, like any other human being. But He has put in us a truly unlimited source of power. And we must learn to be moved by Him. And here is the real limiting factor. He never forces us. Everything works by trusting Him. Everything works by inviting His leadership and following it. He is not forceful, but when you yield to him, you become unbreakable forceful. I would like to tell you that this promise in John 14 is everything. This is why the devil has worked so hard to move against this. It is why he has worked so hard to make Christianity business-like and acceptable. He's tried to make us like every other person. It's why our pastors are more likely to tell you that they don't like okra and that they like certain football teams than anything else, we are actually trying to fit in with the world. Jesus called, called us distinct from the world. He told us to be distinct. His apostles told us that friendship with the world was enmity towards God. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that you can't like football? No, I'm not saying that. I wouldn't have a church if I did. But praise God, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Huh? I'm saying that everything in your life ought to be on the table. I'm saying that anything that competes with your interest in Jesus is idolatrous. I'm saying that the only way anybody will ever know we're different is not because we go build a compound in Waco. It's not because we go live in a convent 
It's not because we go hide in a cave somewhere. It's because we live among them, but something is different inside of us. And they can feel it and see it. Amen. Come on. Maybe my favorite part of this whole thing is when Jesus says, He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. We get in 1 John 2, 24-27. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Don't you hate those if words? Mm. That really is hard on a particular denomination. And this is what He promised us, even eternal life. What's eternal life? When His Spirit remains in you, you're obedient to Him. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. It's almost like he could see into the future and know that people would war against this. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. The Holy Spirit will not take you further away from Jesus. He will take you further into Jesus. He will not cause you to act in an ungodly manner. He will enable you to act in the most godly of manners. And so you start to hear people say, I don't know, I just feel uncomfortable. Isn't all that divisive? You start to hear people, I don't know, when I just felt so strange. Well, of course you're supposed to feel strange. Because it's something that is not of you. It is supernatural and it has entered you to make you supernatural. Friends, if we're going to interact with the living God, there's only one way to do it. He's seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. I'm not here to push a denomination. I don't belong to one. Nobody this morning told me what to preach on. I don't get a royalty check if you leave some denomination. None of those things happen for me. And that makes it a little bit dangerous when somebody has no vested interest, no party platform. All they really want is to seek the truth tenaciously. Yeah? Come on. With all of my heart, I wish you could understand this one concept. It, it will really help you. And I think all of you will get it. I think you'll get it right here and it will change. We sometimes define peace that Jesus gives us as a cessation of hostilities, right? Because if Jacob and Raquel are at war and she's got the kitchen butcher knife and he's got his Little League baseball bat and they throw him down, we say... We've made peace, right? Uh, in the Middle East, if we can get people to stop lobbing rockets at each other for just a little while, oh, we have a peace treaty. This is not at all what that word means in Hebrew. Now, Jesus said this in Greek in, uh, in our text today, but it's a concept that is so well ingrained in Hebrew that there's no way he didn't have the Hebrew word in mind if he didn't actually say it in Hebrew, and it is shalom. I'm going to give you some definitions from uh, the most respected of all uh, lexicons, right here. The general meaning behind the root for shalom is completion and fulfillment. It's of entering into a state of wholeness and unity, a restored relationship. The next one, shalom, I obviously condensed it. Peace, completeness, welfare, and health. Let's move to that next slide. Here, we see... Shalom is used 237 times in the Tanakh, the 39 books of the Older Testament. It can be used to greet someone. You walk up and say, hey Brent, how's your shalom? The way that that's done in the language is simply to look at Brent and say, shalom? It's with a question. 
You're hoping that his peace is well, his health is well. He has a sense of restored relationship with the living God, that he's whole and complete. Here, peace is not a cessation of hostilities. Here, peace is a rightness with God. Can you be right with God and have all men hostile towards you? Jesus was almost every day of his life. He's the prince of peace, and he was the most contentious human being that I think ever lived. Right? Somebody runs up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? Right? That almost looks like he's working to pick a fight, doesn't it? But he only did what he saw the Father doing, so he was always in perfect peace. You cannot define your life by how smooth things are going around you. That's an earthly peace. A heavenly peace is when everything around you could be going quite literally to hell in a handbasket, but you know you're not. As Elvis Presley said, when things go bad, don't go with them. Right? It's a strange place to find wisdom, but wherever we can find wisdom, we'll hang on to it. Huh? Moreover, this word was often used to describe someone's manner of coming or going. Sometimes this took the form of the blessing. Go in peace. If somebody was doing something as anointed by God, if they were doing something because they were in communion with God, they were going in peace, right? This is where we get some of these blessings. Uh, in Spanish, vaya con Dios, go with God. The idea was a Hebrew idea. Whatever we do, it should be flowing out of a restored relationship with the Lord. This is also what Paul says, don't eat with somebody who's sexually immoral and don't wish them God's speed. Don't do it. They're not in a right relationship with God. That would confuse people. Another common expression involves dying or being buried in peace. Peace is present with the wise but absent from the wicked. If a man went to his death in peace, he went to his death in right relationship with God. If he didn't go to his death in peace, that told you. He was damned to an eternity that was peaceless. Another way to think of peace might be order. In right order with God. You've heard get your household in order. Well, the way that you do that is you square everything with God and men as much as possible on your part. It's always possible with you and God. It takes a divine enablement to get it to happen with you and men. Gideon said it like this. He pictured all peace or right order or health or wholeness coming from the Lord. And so he built an altar and he called him Yahweh Shalom. Do you know how you would say that in English? The God of peace. So when Jesus says, I give you my peace, he's not saying, I'm giving you the ability to have no hostilities with anyone. That would make no sense at all. He's saying, I'm giving you my right relationship with the Lord. I'm crediting it to you right now. And don't you worry, I'm not like the world. I'm not taking this back from you. I'm giving it to you. It's supposed to be a permanent thing. This is why when believers are truly saved, they have an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. He first seals them, guaranteeing that they're in the body of Christ. They're given one spirit to drink, and then he begins to manifest in their life in different ways that we often call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is not a first and second blessing. It's 10,000 blessings upon 10,000 blessings. It never stops. It's not a doctrine. It is a relationship. I'm not here to fight for the vineyard doctrine. I'm not here to fight for Pentecostalism. In fact, I'm uncomfortable with all of those groups and you give them long enough, they will all be uncomfortable with me. My feeling is that we ought to be embracing all that that counselor is. All that he is. He wants to enable you. Amen? Yeah. Let us move on from John 14. In peace. Is that okay? Yeah. Go to Numbers 11. I think this will bless you. 
Y'all are very quiet, and I hear no pages turning. You didn't give up on me. Dylan, you didn't give up on me, did you? Doesn't Dylan look like Brett Bear? Right? Y'all don't know who Brett Bear is? It's a compliment, Dylan. Here comes Numbers 11. I'd like to talk to you about anointed one or anointed ones. This is a should be a fairly easy thing. But have you noticed, well, we can have maybe one month a year. I don't know. We'll do a Lottie Moon offering for the missionaries or something. And we're going to bring in all of the people that we've paid to go do something that Jesus told us all to do. Right? Like going to all the nations. And somehow or another, we feel better with this, don't we? I mean, because we're like participating through them vicariously. Yeah? Well, that's good because it's gospel. But what happens when all of your relationships with Jesus are like that? Say, so, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I go to a good church participating through them vicariously. How do I know that we're right with God? Well, my pastor teaches me and I believe what he teaches, participating in his relationship with God vicariously. Are you understand what I'm saying? It's a third party relationship. And we're comfortable with this because... What we like to do is keep one person a little bit distance from us so that we can lift them up a little bit higher than us. Now, sometimes they want to be lifted up, and sometimes they don't. Let's not talk about them. Let's talk about us. The reason we do this is because if we even put him on a stage a little taller than everybody else, he's larger than life in our minds. And if there's anybody that's powerful with God, it's got to be, it's got to be him, right? And then, goodness gracious, let one of those guys on TV... Uh, Sin, like a uh, hundred other people in their many thousand member congregation, sins regularly. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it all comes apart. And everybody is crushed. How the hero has fallen from such a great height. Uh, one author, Michael Brown, said, The church pays a holy fee to go to a holy place on a holy day and see a man in holy clothes do holy things. And it is all unholy. Mm -hmm. And he is so right. Jesus did not die to give us some kind of heroes that we look up to so that we don't have to do anything. So what we're going to cover here in Numbers has to do with, did God anoint that one? Or has he anointed all of the ones? It's a little bit play on words, especially in another language, because Jesus means the anointed one. But you remember I told you God is communal? Amen. How many members are there of Jesus' body? Innumerable. Did he just anoint Jesus? If you're a member of his body, he anointed you. Numbers 11, let's pick up in verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around a tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them... They prophesied, but did not do so again. We'll come back to that. They rested on them. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, that's great, right? It's like Bob and Yobab. Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them. And they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad, not your dad or my dad, but Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, 
spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people, come on, all the Lord's people, were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. There is this natural human jealousy that can occur. See, if I'm doing something that is special, something, Jan, that you could not do, she's my mom, so I can pick her up. Like it makes a difference, right, Mario? So Mario, if I'm doing something that you could not do, right, this makes me feel just a little bit better, right? Now what happens when Mario does it and does it just as well, if not better than me? You might get my place. How many churches operate this way? Youth pastor does too well, time to ship him off somewhere. Associate pastor seems to have people responding to him just like the senior pastor. <laughs> it's church split waiting to happen. But Jesus was not like this and none of the men of God in the word were that way. Moses' heart's desire is that God would put his spirit on all of them in the same way that he put his spirit on Moses. Now, what are the circumstances? We've brought together 70 elders because the people were rejecting the Lord. They were rejecting his leading. They didn't want any more manna. What they wanted was meat. And God got mad at them and said, I'll give you so much meat, it'll come out your nose. Is the church really in such a different place? It's rejecting that which was given from heaven and asking for what can be found on the earth. The Lord descended in a cloud. This is, this is the universal sign of the Spirit. He descended in a cloud, probably the same cloud that he used to fill Isaiah's temple. Probably the same cloud that Daniel saw wrapped around the Ancient of Days that Jesus ascended into and that he will return on. The Lord descended in a cloud, took the Spirit that had been put on Moses and rested it on them. The people were in a state of rebellion. They needed an intervention. They needed help. So God descended and He put His Spirit from an anointed man on all of them. But it was temporary. He doesn't say the Spirit dwelt in them forever. In fact, He specifically says they prophesied, but what? Did not do so again. I want you to think about this. Have we made our salvation an experience like that? The Lord touched us. And we maybe touched the heart of the Lord, but we did not do so again. We said that one time was enough. It never happened again. Doesn't need to happen again. Let's even build a doctrine that says something's wrong if it happens again. Didn't we read in John 14 that He would take up residence inside of you? That He would teach you about all things? One is ongoing and the other was temporary. One was good. Hear me. The Mosaic way was good. But Jesus brought us to something better. Are you hearing me? Better. A permanent relationship, not a temporary functional uh, relationship. Amen. He brought them into unity so that they knew God was among them. Come on. They immediately began to prophesy. If when dripped upon by the Spirit in the Older Testament, it produced supernatural speech unto encouragement and exhortation and anything else, correction that prophecy might be. If when the Holy Spirit touched you in the Older Testament, the Good Testament, what happens in the better? Well, we just make a sign, say receive it, and you just have it. How could that be? Is that what was demonstrated in the book of Acts? Look, I invite you to go look at the slides I put online for the whole world. I invite you to go look at these six instances in which you can see 
that the Holy Spirit came upon them and visible outward things happened and this, this was subsequent to salvation. If it happened in the Older Testament when they were temporarily righteous but the blood of our Messiah had not been poured out in the heavens, how much more so should it happen now? Come on, you were not purchased with the blood of a bull and goat. You were not set right on the Day of Atonement because a bull was slaughtered or a lamb was slaughtered. You were not set right in a... What happened for you? Jesus Himself was slaughtered for you so that you might have a permanent position in the family of God. Are we then going to say, you died for me to be empowered from on high, but I don't want it because it's weird? Are we really going to do that? Maybe a better question is, have many hundreds of thousands decided to do that? And is it right? Is it not offensive to God? Why is Joshua so concerned? He's concerned because most people are concerned if somebody outshines them. But Jesus is not like that, and neither was Moses. Does his behavior, Joshua's behavior, exist in the church? You're hard-pressed to find a church it doesn't exist in. You know, every revival, every revival, I'm a, I'm a student of revivals, I, I can't help it. Every single one can be traced to people who declared the church of their day apostate and asked for God to change. Little reformations within even Protestantville, right? Every single one can be tied to that. You know what else? A movement to prayer. This is man's desire to reach out towards God. When you know that the Lord is moving among you is when you are desiring to do things like turn off the TV and begin to get plugged into Him. Suddenly the things of the earth have grown strangely dim, as the old song says, Suzanne. She gave me the second chapter of Acts Worship Choir, and I played it so much that it broke. Of course, six months before that, I was listening to other nasty things that I would be embarrassed of now. But something in me so fundamentally changed. I wanted to be in contact with my father all of the time. And since I couldn't go into the heavens, and since he was not an old man with a beard like Zeus sitting next to me in the car, there was only one way to do this. You know the word enthused? It's kind of like a synonym for passionate, right? This is a Greek word that, a Greek base to an English word that literally means entheos. People were enthused, they were passionate, they were motivated, they were said to be filled with the Spirit of a God. That's why Pharaoh responded to Joseph that way. Can we find anyone in whom the Spirit of God dwells like this man and he made him a leader? People of God have always been recognizable by God's Spirit inside of them. It's only in the last couple thousand years that we have replaced that test with a test of creed. We've said, ignore my deeds. It's all under grace. Just look at my creed. That's why when this church was founded, the Lord told me to perform out there the things you practice in here or it was worthless. Of course, the first chapter of James says that. I, I'd like to draw your attention to something before I move really any further than that. Life-Changing Ministries is not some giant religious organization. It's, it's a family of believers. And because it's a family of believers and every believer has a ministry, every single one, there's, there's not a division between clergy and laity. Every single believer is supposed to have a ministry. We are a family of ministries. That is why the word is plural in our title. I'd like you to think about this. Nobody told Zeke to go to the prisons. Nobody told Kelly to go. But they do let a host of other people go with them. Nobody told them to do that. Who orchestrated it? I would say the Holy Spirit did under the direction of the Word. Nobody told Joel, Joel to go to the abortion clinic. 
Nobody told him to do that. But he does, and a host of other people go with him. Nobody told Brent to go find the poor and the homeless on Saturdays. Uh, praise God for Alex. We're praying for him, right? Nobody told him to do that. I would say the Holy Spirit did. My job is to prepare people for their works of service. And when you see these works of service springing up everywhere, when you see people that are moved to go to those who are in prison, to those who are widowed or orphaned, those that are homeless, how could we not say it's pure faultless religion when the book of James says that is pure faultless religion? Instead, because we meet in a storefront and we don't dress right, and maybe we do things unconventionally, we're met with skepticism. I just want to tell you, you will know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. This is not a defense of uh, this church. It's a defense of the church. You know a tree by its fruit. And as long as the Holy Spirit is manifesting ministries in people's lives in here, I'm not going to tell you I, it's their testimony, not mine, but there were some pretty lousy people in this room, me, the chief of all. But God has taken that trash and He is turning it into treasure. <laughs> We're like sleepers. He put an engine in us that nobody knew was there. It is the power of His Holy Ghost. It is the anointing. And this is why a man that has the anointing needs no other thing. God will give him teachers. He will give him encouragement. He will give him everything else. But he doesn't need anything except a drink of the power God said would be a spring of living water. Amen. Friends, this is essential to Christianity. And in fact, most Protestants can look and see what has gone on in the Orthodox world. I'm speaking of what Americans call Greek Orthodox, although all people that we call Greek Orthodox don't call themselves that. They simply say Orthodox. Or what we see in the Roman Catholic world, and we go, man, that is just a form of religion, but there's no power in it. And we don't realize we do the same thing if our lives are not the living, moving, breathing demonstration of the Spirit of God. We've substituted one dry religion for another dry religion. We jump right out of a kitchen of fire into a pan of fire, and the whole time saying we're better than them to justify ourselves. I think God's tired of it. I think He's calling us to more. Come on, Sherry. I think He's calling us to more. I think He can do amazing supernatural things through you. I think He can change the world through people just like you. You know how? Because He took... Twelve little Jewish boys, one of whom turned out to be a devil. And with the remaining eleven, he turned the world upside down. Was it because they had superior skill? Was it because they had been through seminary? Was it because they were smarter than everyone? It was because they had the anointing. When you hear the word anointing, understand it means many things. If we put oil on Cody's head because he's a Levite, we said that we anointed him. In fact, we put it on his right ear and his right big toe. First, you had to put on blood, then oil. That's a whole other message called blood, then oil. It's a good one. We don't sell them. It'd be something that you, you can listen to. You'll understand what I'm talking about. We would say he was anointed. Of course, what was that oil symbolizing? The Holy Spirit that would now cause him to perform the function of a priest. That's what it was. We also anointed other things. Bezalel and Oliab in the uh, latter part of the book of Exodus. You know they were anointed. Bezalel was anointed to build all kind of things for the furnishings of the tabernacle of Moses. You know what Oliab was anointed for? To help Bezalel. <laughs> That's how God... Hey, maybe it took divine help 
for the guy to be able to work with the other one. I don't know. I mean, you ask Judah, he would say it's like that with me. What I'm trying to say is, people were divinely enabled to do many things, but that anointing never set up inside of them and became a source of anointing for all. A river of living water flowing out in every direction. Do you know that in the book of Acts, when like Samaria received the gospel, they didn't see uh, the Holy Spirit come like fire from heaven. You know what they saw? Men who had already received that come put their hands on them. See, he called us to be a light to the world. He called us to be priests. I would just like to say that the heart of Moses was the heart of Jesus. Turn to John 14 and you'll see this. It'll be John 14, verse 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Are you hearing that? That doesn't sound like he says, you know, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be a little beneath me. I want to make sure that you understand that my name is spelled with a big I and yours is with a little U. Right? You can call me Mr. or Doctor or Mr. Doctor. Anything that you want, but some kind of title that makes sure that I am above you. By the way, do we have a welder in the room? We have an electrician in the room? Who's a craftsman? Anybody a craftsman in here? Okay, Rick is a craftsman. When I just said Rick is a craftsman, wouldn't it be kind of odd if I said, Hello, electrician Rick. But you are forbidden to say anything to your pastor other than Pastor Stevens. Why is that? Well, it's just out of respect. Do we respect Rick less? Why do you think these traditions exist? <coughs> do you see that anywhere in the Word? In fact, even when they did use titles of each other, most of the time they, they were prevented from doing it. Why do we do some of the stuff that we did? Somehow or another, these degrees of separation between us and them, whoever the them are, insulate us from Jesus' words that say, anybody who believes in me will be doing what I'm doing. It insulates us. We've, we've hired Michael to do it, but let's call him Brother Michael now. No, no, I know. I saw a license plate that let me know exactly what to call him. I saw a license plate coming from Missouri City. Big, beautiful church. Big, beautiful black escalade. said, the apostle. Because this is how apostles announce themselves, right? They don't ride on donkeys anymore. They're not at the end of the parade. Now they drive Escalades. Friends, the church is in sad shape. It's not in sad shape because they drive Escalades. It's in sad shape because we can't do this. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. And we need the Holy Spirit. If we were swimming in the Holy Spirit, not having just spoken in other tongues once, not just having prophesied once, not had warm goosebumps once, but an ongoing, living, active, breathing relationship with the Holy Spirit, we would see the works of Jesus coming out of our life. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Is there an anointed one or are there anointed ones? The answer is both. Jesus is the anointed one, but he has called you to be the anointed ones. You are his hands and feet. How many of you believe that God sets the lonelies in family? Hmm? Psalm 66. How many of you believe that God cares for the homeless? How many of you believe that God feeds the hungry? How many of you believe that God wants children to live? 
if he's going to do anything about those things, he puts his spirit in you to divinely enable you to do it. I would say that the ministries that are beginning to grow out of this church that were not directed by the church, nobody in the church said, from the top down, you must go do this. They were birthed of the Holy Spirit. What's supernatural about it? The first thing that is supernatural is that they care. Isn't that supernatural in and of itself? How many hundreds of millions of Christians do not care that people sleep under overpasses? Oh, I mean, they may be moved if they see it on a commercial or on a TV before they hit next. How many don't care that Houston has the nation's largest abortion clinic in it, right next to the largest church? It's supernatural that they care. It's even more supernatural that they believe they can make a difference. It's even more supernatural that not only do they believe and they care, but they are actually going. Come on, friends, the anointing will do this. And you know what? It doesn't require me to be there. It doesn't require Matt to be there, although we love to be there and we'll do so more and more. It requires the anointing to be there. Hmm? I have a few scriptures that I want to give you, and we're going to take communion today. Is that all right? Good, because even if it's not all right, we're going to do it. <laughs> In our communion, by the way, we have wine and we have grape juice. I want to explain that. We have wine because the Bible says it's wine. It is wine. Every study I've ever done has convinced me that it's wine. I think that it is a giant, ridiculous myth that is twisted what is W-I-N-E into something that you would spell with a G-R-A-P-E. That's, that's just silliness. But churches that do those things have become comfortable with adapting the word to what they are comfortable with. Wine does make me uncomfortable, though. So I also put grape juice. Let me tell you why. Some people have developed an addiction to wine. Anybody have an addiction to grape juice? Because Paul warned the, not to choose an elder who's addicted to too much wine, and if it's grape juice, we have a real awkward problem, don't we? <laughs> we have both because some people have had alcoholic problems, and I would like you to be able to keep your vows. So we got as close as we could to wine, which was grape juice. But we will not stand here and pretend that biblical wine is not biblical wine simply to make people who participated in prohibition more comfortable. Okay, you can think that Jesus didn't drink if you want to. Some people say he's a vegetarian. Some think he's an African-American. Some think that he is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Norwegian Viking, at least from the movies. It looks that way. <laughs> But we will not change the Word of God to make us comfortable. What we will change is ourselves to be compliant with the Word of God. That's what will change. So, here's where we're going. We've got a few more scriptures for you, and then we will talk about communion and take it together. Corinthians 14, 31. Nation of priests is my idea. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Moses wished that all God's people were prophets. Jesus said that uh, we do even greater things than he did. And Paul told the Corinthian church, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. In the coming weeks, I'm going to go through the spiritual gifts, their purposes in the body. I will even show you the questions that I think were being asked to the Corinthian church, to Paul rather, and why he answered the way that he did. We won't duck a single scripture. I'll give you a chance to, to, to bring all of your questions. In Corinthians 14, the first verse, we see it said this way. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Moses in nearly 1500 B.C. wished all God's people would prophesy, and in the first century it became possible, and I will show you why. 
In Exodus 19, the third verse, we hear a promise. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, it's almost like he knew always there would be a partial compliance. Always there'd be people that love the Lord God with all kinds of parts of their hearts and mind, but not all of them. Who would raise golden calves right next to the mountain that God was actually speaking to them from. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Guys, we are supposed to be that kingdom. 1 Peter 2, 9-12 through 12 says it. I'll only give you the first line. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. No longer is it a select few. No longer is it temporary. Now it is permanent, living in, ongoing, indwelling. And... For every man, woman, and child in the kingdom. Are you in the kingdom? It is the litmus test. You are in the kingdom and the Holy Spirit, and you ought to have a vibrant relationship. And in all vibrant relationships, new things are happening. Right? If Jacob and I meet every day for 20 years, you can say, man, we've been friends for 20 years. Of course, if Jacob and I meet every day for 20 years, and I say the same sentence to him and he responds, he also could just be the doorkeeper. He could also just be the security guard. That's not a living, bright, breathing, vibrant relationship, even if we've known each other 20 years. Somewhere we're going to have to explore the depths of each other's hearts and minds to have true intimacy, to have true relationship. Maybe this is how Jesus could say in Matthew 7, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. And their response to all of that was, but didn't we do this, this, and this? But I never knew you. Come on, any of you have a neighbor on your street that you've seen every day that you've lived there for many years, but you don't know them? Are you known by the Lord? Does He know your thoughts? Do you verbalize them to Him? Do you know the Lord? Do you know His thoughts? Yeah. The book of Corinthians tells us that the only way to know a man's thoughts is to know the Spirit in a man. Right? The only way to know God's thoughts have them revealed by His Spirit. See, there's only one way to worship Him. It's in spirit and in truth. We're supposed to be a nation of people that are supernaturally connected to God. In Acts 1.8 He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If you do not feel powerful, perhaps you need another drink. Micah 3.8 The man stood and said, but as for me, I am filled with power. Can you imagine saying that to a whole nation? I mean, you better be ready to put up or shut up, right? Mm -hmm. what, what about Elijah to stand at Mount Carmel, to call out to 450 prophets to another God, to call out, shout to your God, cut yourselves, maybe he's on the potty or can't hear you. Cry louder, he said. Knowing that the Lord would answer him from heaven. Actually, God answered Elijah in a different way. A time period where the Spirit was resting upon people for a reason. But the Spirit had not been poured out on all flesh like at Pentecost. He answered him from heaven with fire 
and then water all in the course of seven years. Think about that. It's almost like he had a relationship with the Lord, knew his thoughts, huh? Well, he was just some, some special guy, elevated way, way above you. I mean, he was just, he was just, you know, maybe we should put him on a stage and let him pastor our church because he's so much better than us. Doesn't that make us feel better to not do the things that he did? Of course, the book of James in the fifth chapter says he was a man just like you. Says it. It's almost like James believed that anything was possible for any believer who was filled with power. In Acts 2.4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Hear this phrase. Probably all you heard was he said tongues, right? I want you to hear this phrase. As the Spirit enabled them. Come on. That parakletos had now entered them and he could divinely enable them to do anything God was divinely calling them to do. Everybody believes that until we actually talk about you doing something, right? The verse says, they spoke. You know, that took some faith. I doubt seriously that God grabbed their jaw and made it move. I doubt seriously that happened. Or that it happened at Cornelius' house, or that it happened in Samaria, or that it happened in Acts 19 when Paul took the road through the interior. I, I, I doubt seriously he ever made them. Did, anybody, did God make any of you get saved? Is it less supernatural that somebody had to tell you about salvation? Is it less supernatural that somebody prayed with you for salvation? And why is it less supernatural when we talk about the divine moving of the Holy Spirit? How could you know if no one tells you? How could you know? I'm going to be honest, for a long time period in my life, I had no idea any of this existed. And when I asked the men of God I trusted, they told me it was of the devil. You know what? That made it a little harder for me to be open to it. Of course, as soon as I became open to it and experienced it, I was no longer welcomed in that fellowship. I mean, I was, but I needed to be somebody other than who God had made me. I needed to worship in a different fashion than the Holy Spirit was leading me to worship. Now, make no mistake, I still love those men. They love me. One of them is in his 80s, and he still asks about me every time my name comes up in a conversation or subject. He's actually proud of me. Of course, that's because more than 50 years ago, he had the same experience. He just hid it and didn't tell anybody because, you know, his denomination is not very accepting of it. The town that he lives in has two churches with former members of his denomination that were thrown out for experiencing what he experienced and kept secret, and I experienced and told the whole world. Of course, those churches are about 10 times the size of the churches that threw them out because God is trying to show that there is life here. I think maybe what would be best is let us go to Joel. Matthew, come up here while we do this. Go to Joel 2. Let's read this together. I want to read to you a promise that all of the nations would look forward to. This comes from Joel 2. It was quoted on the day of Pentecost just so that you can find it in more than one place. Tell me when you're in Joel 2.28 and, and please don't not turn. I mean, does anybody have the book of Joel memorized? Anybody? Anybody like to quote the second chapter to us? Okay, then turn there. I mean, one of you is there. Are the rest of us there? I'll have two scriptures left. Only two. This one and one more. And then, then we're going to worship a little bit together. We'll have communion together. And I'll feed you. How much better does it get than that? You know what? No tickets. We didn't sell tickets for this. No, no raffles. 
No, no games of men. In fact, we're just going to get together and have a biblical feast. He said, what do you mean a biblical feast? Did you know that when they took communion in the first century, they had a whole meal together? A whole feast together. It was not just a cracker and, and just a thimble. You know what? But that is more expedient. You can get more people in and out. You can just move them through like cattle. Pretty soon we could just say by eating the cracker, you're a believer, huh? Oh, we've done that in history already? Most of us who are Protestants, Protestants, decided that was wrong. But have we succumbed to the same kind of attitude that simply says we'll move people in and out? You know, How many of you come from a denomination or a, a tradition, I should say? How about that? A tradition where, oh, Brother Cody, Brother Cody's made a decision for the Lord today, right? Huh? You'll write that down. I have to report my numbers. A decision for the Lord today. Now, we would like to invite everybody in the room to come shake Cody's hand before he leaves here today. And as soon as we bow our heads to pray, what happens? Three-quarters of the church gets up and runs out the back door. The front three rows are the ones that come say, Hello, am I lying? No. Something wrong with our hearts? See, we don't do those things in here for a lot of reasons. One is I simply can't find it in the Scripture. I think that when Zeke got born again, his own mama would know it. I think that when God is moving in your life, your spouse looks and goes, Something's happened to you and the pace at which it's happening scared me a little bit. I'm just going to be honest. Supernatural, friends. Like pulling up next to that station wagon with a hemi in it. Are you in uh, Joel 2? Yes. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will... Come on, let's say it again. Your sons and daughters will... Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. He goes on to talk about changes in the heavens at the coming of the Lord. We are in a time period that the apostles said for us. He would pour out His spirit on all flesh. He doesn't make anybody any more than He makes us get saved. It works by faith. Friends, the last thing that I have to tell you in this regard is that Matthew 27, very near the 51st verse. Joy, do you have that one? Mm -hmm. Matthew 27, verse 51. Tell me when you're there. I'll turn there. At Jesus' crucifixion, look at this event. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the bottom to the top. Come on, somebody. From the top to the bottom. Why would God tear a curtain from top to bottom that by all accounts was somewhere between 8 and 12 inches thick that was as much as 50 feet high? What did that curtain stand as a barrier between? Man in God's presence. And it was torn not from the bottom up, but from the top down. God Himself removed every barrier to every human being receiving His Spirit. Amen. See, when the living God came and indwelt a human being, or the living God tabernacled in flesh among us, or however you would like to say that, and He offered His life, He presented that in a heavenly tabernacle. One that the earth was only a shadow and copy of. And when his blood was put there in a very permanent way, people could be made right with God forever. Not yearly, but 
forever. And then what would happen is the same place where that blood came from, the Holy of Holies, where God Himself was enthroned, He would pour, just like the Feast of Tabernacles, pour His Spirit into earthen vessels. And they would forever participate in this divine venture. Peter says it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We would have divine enablement to live like Him. Who could decide that they don't do that because of their denomination? Surely no denomination was formed trying to be less like Jesus. These are just mistakes. They're just mistakes. And I don't want to repeat any of them. I want to tell you every believer, every single one, should be continually being baptized in the Spirit. It is our only hope to let the world know that we're in Him and He's in us so that they might begin to believe as Jesus prayed. It's our only hope. Amen. You'll never convince them with your doctrine. It hasn't worked in the last several centuries. Why would it begin working now? But when they see something that is authentically God in you, they would ask you, something's happened to you, Steve. What's changed? Mm. I remember when that happened in Steve's life. Mm. You know what? And for him, it was as simple as he realized that he didn't need to brace, clench his teeth and his fist and wait for God to do it. He actually needed to respond like my little girl who sang to me the other night. He actually needed to try. And then the Lord enabled him. And he was not in a cathedral. We were standing by railroad tracks outside of a coffee shop. We're going to sing. We're going to sing about the blood of, of the Lamb. We're going to sing about that sacrifice that puts you in right connection with the Lord. Then we're going to sing about His anointing falling upon us. The way we take communion in this church is everybody here is invited to take it. We're asking you to take stock of your life. If you're honest with Jesus about your life, how ugly it is or how right it is, then you're invited to take communion with us because we believe that your sin will not keep God from touching you. It only keeps you from wanting to touch God. He died to take your sin away and put you in right standing. So this meal represents that. And after the blood was applied in the Older Testament, the next thing that came was always the oil. He will clean you and then He will fill you. And He'll do that as many times as it takes for the rest of your life if you're hungry for it. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.